Hey friends, good to be back with you. I want to let you know for today, you've got a special guest host who's going to be hosting for this episode. It's one of my fellow students in the Masters of Arts in New Testament, Becky Castle Miller, who is a pastor in the Netherlands, has been teaching a, a class going through one of Scott's books. I'll let her tell more about it, but um, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. She's actually recording this from the Netherlands, and so a few times the audio cuts in and out, and um, just wanted to let you know that, but the, the conversation is so great that we wanted to make sure that you heard all that they were able to talk about and have Scott jump in on this class. Um, Also, before we jump into their conversation, I wanted to let you know that if you're interested in maybe studying with Scott like Becky and I do, or um, would love to know how she is able to join from the Netherlands in our Northern Live online learning platform, um, or would just like to sit in with a class with Scott, we have an opportunity coming up for you. It's the Taste of Northern that we've had before, and we're having it again. It's the week of February 4th through the 7th, and um, you could join Scott's class as he's teaching us through um, the story of Romans and uh, how that impacts how we understand and apply Romans to our church. So that class is on Monday, February 4th, um, or if that's not a, a possibility for you, we got a number of different classes um, from people like Dennis Edwards, Cherith V. Nordling, and David Fitch just to mention a few, Um, but we'd love to have you join us. If you'd like more information on that and to sign up, you can do so at seminary.edu slash taste. Again, that's seminary.edu slash taste. So I'm so grateful to have you with us again today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, Scott has a conversation on the second edition of his book, The Blue Parakeet. So my name is Becky Castle-Miller and I'm a student at Northern Seminary. I'm in one of Scott's M-A-N-T cohorts, uh, this, the first cohort. How many cohorts do you have now, Scott? Three? Fourth and uh, next summer. That's so exciting. we have three oh. right now. Oh. And I'm actually at Northern Seminary because of Scott's book, The Blue Parakeet. That was the first of Scott's books that I read, and it had a big impact on my life in how I understood the Bible and also how I understood God's call on my life to go into pastoral ministry. So that's what led me to Scott's blog, which led me to Northern. So I have a lot of thanks to give to Blue Parakeet. So it was fun for me to get to work with you, Scott, on um, the instructor resources for teaching Blue Parakeet that we put together for Zondervan. So can you tell us a little bit about your process of how how you wrote Blue Parakeet in the first place, how the book came about? That was in 2008. It first came out. Then you had a revised edition in 2016, but then a whole new second edition in 2018. Can you tell us about the whole story of the book? Uh, I was going to write a book on reading the Bible with four uh, examples of how reading the Bible changes when you read the Bible as a story. The four examples were going to be women, gospel, atonement, and kingdom. And um, so I started writing, and I got through the first half of reading the Bible as a story. 
developed the idea of wiki stories, etc. Then I started writing the women's section and it got longer and longer. And I wrote my editor and said, I will not be able to write all four. We're just going to do women. <laughs> at first he said, oh, he says, we need all of them. I said, well, I'm not going to get them all. The book will get too big. So we did Blue Parakeet and the illustration of reading the Bible as a story was how women's roles in leadership uh, undergoes changes and morphings and mutations as the Bible rolls along and gets into the New Testament. And, uh, I gave a lecture at Fuller Seminary on Junia. And I called it uh, Junia is not alone. And it was a development of the idea that women have been doing marvelous ministries in the history of the church, but their names are largely unknown. So I start with the story of Junia, who was changed to Junius because I often said that she went through a sex operation, sex change operation, uh, because males were not happy with a female apostle. So I uh, then, if you pay attention to the history, largely it was in, it was not until the seventies that Junia was raised from the dead and became an official part of the text that everybody reads. At that point, Junius disappears. And as a Mennonite, I say it's okay to kill non-existent males. So, um, so we added this story about Junia, uh, this uh, lecture I gave about Junia to the end of the book. And I had been kind of bugging Zondervan for a few years to update the book. And that's all the response I got. Then all of a sudden, John Raymond, my editor at Zonderman, came to me one day and said, we need to do a whole new second edition. I want some stuff on kingdom. I want more stuff on gospel. I want stuff on science and faith. So uh, I think there, Becky, I think there's probably 75 to 100 more pages. I haven't looked. I haven't looked at the, uh, the revised edition. I have the... the revised edition of Blue Parakeet, which has the appendix on Junia. And then I've got the second edition and the second edition is probably a quarter of an inch thicker 83 pages more the uh the new blue parakeet the blue one the second edition so oh and i have stuff on race and slavery uh as a result of working with philemon so that's how it worked um but it, the, the funny part of this book is i don't remember what the original title was, but it was something bland like um, on reading the Bible. And because of sitting in the back porch and having this funny experience with the blue parakeet, I asked the editor if I could call it the blue parakeet because I tell this story at the beginning of the book. And he said, no, no one will know what it means. And I said, well, I want you to try and see what the publicity people say. So I gave it to him with the title of Blue Parakeet, and the publicity people said, no, how are we going to market this? I said, how about putting a Blue Parakeet on the front of the book? And I said, people will say, what does this have to do with studying the Bible? And I said, at that point, we've won the game, because now they're going to have to open the book. And that's, that's the reason for good titles. So eventually, they gave me the title, they permitted that title, and it's worked really well. How's that, Becky? 
That's great. In 10 years between when you wrote the first edition and the second edition, what changed in your own view, your own scholarship, your own relationship with the God of the Bible and the Bible? And, and how did you incorporate that into the second edition? Yeah, that's a, actually a good question. I've, I've not thought about this too much. I worked on a lot of topics that worked out the idea of reading the Bible as a narrative. Conclusions that I came to is that in many ways, there isn't one narrative to the Bible. This is perhaps the weakness of Tom Wright's understanding of narrative is that he seems to think there's only one narrative. Um, different writers are going to tell a narrative that would be different or use a different narrative, but they all have to deal with the same big ideas, let's say creation, covenant, Israel, etc. And they all have basically the same people and events, Abraham, David, uh, etc., the patriarchs, uh, the prophets, Moses, etc. You can't tell the, the Jewish narrative, a Jewish narrative, if you don't deal with, let's say, Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. If you don't have them, you don't have a Jewish narrative. So I've got a, in the second edition, I have the capacity for a broader narrative to be at work in the Bible. And that was, that was part of the second edition. That was important to me. Without undoing the whole story of the icons, I really like that story of redemption. That would be the major, the major thing that happened. Uh, slavery. I worked on science and faith, so there's there's new things in there that um, create tension with lots of uh, Christian uh, circles. I'm looking at the two table of contents side by side here, and the first part of the book looks the same in the table of contents. And it was a few years in between when I read the two versions. So I don't remember. Did you change much in the text of the first 10 chapters or so? I added things, but didn't change the text much. Just a few things. I don't think there's, there should be too many pages different. Less. Not, not too many. Not too much. Just a little bit of addition. So... What you've changed then mostly for the second edition is that part four used to be focused on women in church ministries today. And now part four is reading the Bible as story in three examples. And you've got a chapter, Slaves in the King and His Kingdom Redemption Story, Atonement in the King and His Kingdom Redemption Story, and Justice in the King and His Kingdom Redemption Story. And those are all looking at how these themes fit into the narrative of the Bible in the three sort of chapters that you set up, uh, theocracy, monarchy, and Christocracy, and, and how those themes come to play in that narrative. So then you've got part five, which is now Women in Church Ministries today. And when I read it, I noticed that you had added some more context, uh, especially on the new Roman woman and Ephesus. And then I think you've got some new appendices on women as well, with in new scholarship that's come out in the past 10 years. Yeah, a little bit more on women in those passages, and then another appendix on Genesis and science. And that is a summary of your work with Dennis Venema, is that right? 
on Adam and the Genome. So if people want to cheat and not buy the whole Adam and the Genome, should they just read your appendix? <laughs> or is your publisher going to get mad that I suggested that? Get mad. It's not the point, you know. They've made their money. Um, I would say um, I don't do the science at all. So half of Adam and the Genome is science. I barely summarize uh, all the work that I did on Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve in the Jewish tradition. I just barely summarize that. So big picture is there. I talk there uh, more about the problem of science and faith and how, how we have to be more patient with the Bible, more patient with science, try to bring them in dialogue with one another rather than posing them as enemies. So I did more of that in that, in that chapter. Appendix. Is there going to be a third edition of Blue Parakeet someday? You never know, Becky. I don't plan on it. I don't want it to get any bigger. One thing I appreciated about it was uh, I read it when I was just first starting to read real theology. And it was easy to read. It was bus theology, but it was easy for me as a lay person who hadn't done any seminary yet to read and understand. And I, I appreciated that about it. So I definitely value that it, it's not longer than it is. I think that's. I think at point. some point it becomes uh, against the purpose of a book written at this level for it to get too long. But writing so that um, lay people can understand what's going on uh, is hard work. And I'm committed to trying to do it as well as I can. What is the difference between the books that you write for other theologians and the books that you write for the church besides page count? My wife, Chris, would say it, one group of books is readable and the other group is unreadable. <laughs> uh, that's the big difference. Uh, writing is about learning your audience. Not simply writing uh, out of your own head. It's about knowing who you're writing for. And these uh, these books, like the Blue Parakeet, are written for people like you. And I, when I wrote the original Blue Parakeet, I was writing for Chris, and I wanted her to understand the Bible as narrative because that wasn't something that she grew up with or that we ever heard. And she had heard me talk about it academically, but never, never had. Uh, never discussed it like that or I'd never written about it and after every chapter after I finished every chapter she would read it and make all kinds of comments and I'd go back and revise it so knowing your audience is really important my academic books say a book that I have right now I have two books at a publisher right now one on pastor Paul is written for pastors my editor my editor doesn't quite get that so I've had to tell him to leave things alone a little bit and my book, uh, I have a book on Romans coming out from Baylor University Press. And I see that book as written for your class. So Master of Arts students, for pastors, and for academics. So I, I had to keep all of them in mind as I wrote that. And uh, so when you change audiences, you change your vocabulary, you change your assumptions, change what you can say, what you need to explain, what you don't need to explain. 
I don't need to explain the new perspective to people who are reading Romans or really even Pastor Paul. I do have to explain it if I'm writing, if I write about it in Blue Parity. What you said about wanting Chris to be able to understand how to read the Bible as narrative, is that your kind of elevator pitch for Blue Parakeet? Is that how you would sum up the book in one sentence? It's people. It's about how to read the Bible and various themes in the Bible in light of the narrative of the Bible. So for readers who have read the first edition of Blue Parakeet, why should they read the second edition? should read it because there's more stuff in it. Uh, in a sense, it's more of the same. It's not new in that sense, although I have added more about narrative, a larger narrative, the king and his kingdom narrative, redemptive narrative. <clears throat> so I've added a little bit more there. But um, if the women uh, chapters did not convince a person of the significance of narrative, Maybe the justice one would, maybe the kingdom one would, um, you know, maybe the slave type thing would. So those different themes illustrate what happens when you read the Bible as a narrative. And for people who haven't read Blue Parakeet at all, what's the selling point for them? Here's, Becky, here's the issue. Ordinary people don't read the Bible. They want to read the Bible. I think a lot of them do. And they start out and Genesis is kind of fun, and Exodus is not bad until you get to the laws, and it goes on and on and on about the tabernacle. But once people hit Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it really slows down, and people put their Bibles away. When they get to First and Second Samuel, you know, First and Second Kings, they just drop off the map. So. What I'm trying to provide is a narrative framework of how to approach the Bible. You still have to re uh, wade through long stories about David that are not very edifying, stupid stuff about Solomon that are ridiculous. Uh, the kings are not, you know, this is like reading Washington. It's like Washington, D.C. It's not like a Baptist church that's full of goodness you know it, it's just not that way so you got to be used to it and in that sense you get to see the uh the people of god warts and all which is can be a bit encouraging at times uh so i i would say that this this book provides um, a large framework in which how to approach the bible and when you all of a sudden get lost in first kings chapter 15 you think what is going on here? Uh, if you keep the idea of the narrative uh, in mind, you might be able to gain perspective on how to look at that passage. My husband has a special request to make for the publisher, which is that they would record an audiobook version of the second edition. Because he recently listened to the first edition on audiobook while cycling. And so we've been talking about the book and I'll bring up something from the second edition. He'll say, well, I don't know. I only read the first edition. They need to come out with an audiobook of the second one. So you can pass that on to the publisher that they should. So there is an audio version of the Blue Parakeet, the first edition? Yes. Is there, there's not one of the revised editions? Not yet. Okay. But there's no uh, audio version of the second edition. Not I'm yet. not involved in that. 
I usually don't even hear about it unless they ask me for a reader. Mm -hmm. And they did not ask me for a reader, so I'll bring it up. I'll bring mm -hmm. it up and say, John, well, you can write, John. I can write, John. We need an audio version of second edition Blue Parakeet. Nice. So what is the backstory that you know more of from the publisher's end than I do? Why did Zondervan want to create these teaching resources for the second edition? So while you were finishing the book, um, they had me work on these uh, sort of instructor's manual to download, but I don't think I ever heard the story for why they wanted to create that. Here's the uh, surprising story for Zondervan. When this book was published, Zondervan was not convinced it was going to do well. And that was one of the reasons they thought Blue Parakeet was a turnoff title. What really surprised them is the number of Christian colleges, Sunday school classes, and in general, people who wanted this book and used it in classrooms. So they, one day I remember one, it wasn't John, it was another editor called me and said, do you have a list? Ask me, do you have a list of colleges that are using Blue Parakeet? I said, no, I would not have that. Zondervan should have that. So they did a list and they were very surprised at the number of schools that were actually using it. When that happened, Becky, I think they made, they made, uh, they've been developing curricula for other books they realized this was a book that needed to have a curriculum development because of the number of classes, whether in churches or in schools that were using the book. That's the point where I heard about it. And I had a lot of fun um, creating that curriculum for, uh, for Blue Parakeet, which if people are looking for that is available for free on Zondervan's um, Textbook Plus website. Exams and quizzes. Oh, man. It was a lot of work. <laughs> I created a whole instructor's manual where I summarized each chapter of the second edition so that teachers could refresh themselves uh, on the content of the book, pulled out key phrases and terms and definitions, and then created flashcards for those. And I wrote uh, test questions uh, for each chapter, and I, I made PowerPoint slides for each chapter so that. Oh, and even a syllabus, even two syllabi, actually, one for a three-time-a-week class and one for a two-time-a-week class. Um, each chapter also has uh, online resources, so there's extra resources for teachers, videos they can watch, like clips from the Bible Project or Seven Minute Seminary or other teaching videos. I've got a lecture from Beverly Gaventa in there on Phoebe and Junia. Um, so there's websites they can visit and videos and audio they can listen to. And then I also created classroom activities for each chapter that they could do if they wanted to be interactive in their classroom with different activities for the, the chapters and the lessons. Um, and then I think that's about it. Basically, it's everything that a teacher would need if they wanted to teach Blue Parakeet in a Sunday school class or in a, a college classroom. I, I have the British hardcover edition of that, that Phoebe Paula Gooder. Yes, I've just started reading it. Okay, all right. That is an excellent, That that's a good book recommendation. Phoebe. I hung on to it for you. That was one I had to buy as soon as it came out. I love that. Okay. So anyway, if, te yeah, if teachers want to get an account on Zondervan's Textbook Plus website, they can download all of those resources um, to help them teach the class. And I actually, uh, when I created it, had not taught the book myself. 
So I was sort of creating the resources in faith a bit of hoping that it would work well. And then this past term, I used my own resources to teach a class at my church on Blue Parakeet. Um, my pastor and I are, have been co-teaching a class and he's teaching uh, public speaking and preaching and I'm teaching biblical interpretation and we're alternating weeks. So the students are learning how to read and live out the Bible and then how to teach it and how to present it in their writing and public speaking to others. And it's been just absolutely the highlight of my semester is working with these students because they are so motivated and so enthusiastic and it's been a blast watching them learn. So the, the people joining our call today are a few of the students from that class who are calling in from various places in the world um, to join this call. And they've got some questions for you. Uh, so each student has between one and four questions. I told them I'll, I'll let them ask one question at a time about biblical interpretation and about blue parakeets. Um, and then they can get some more of your, your insight on it. So let's see, who wants to go first? Rosie, do you want to ask a question first? Yeah, sure, thanks. Um, I only have one question. Um, and Do you want to introduce yourself first, Rosie? Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, so I'm Rosie. Uh, right now I'm calling from Limerick, Ireland. Um, home for the holidays. Limerick. Yes. Um, I'm a science student and doing my bachelor's right now. Um, Oh yeah, and just a totally side note, uh, I watched a lecture that you gave on Adam and the Genome, and yeah, I thought that was really oh, cool. It helped me a lot, yeah. Uh, okay, that was a side note. So my question was, um, I've been learning like a lot of really cool things and, you know, going deeper into what like the Bible actually says. And I'm wondering how would, how would we bring this forward to like, in an evangelistic context where like I'm talking with someone who's sort of rejected the idea of Christianity, but what they've rejected is like a version that's not really what the Bible is even saying. If, if you know what I'm, does that make sense? Are you asking, um, they're rejecting it because of science or just, are you just saying they're rejecting it in general? In general, like for, yeah, in general. Okay. There's, uh, there's no one solution for this, Rosie, but it is a really important question, and it's a big question today, and it's going to get bigger in the next 10 and 20 years rather than smaller, because there's no sign right now that the church is going to gain all its strength back, and you know that as well as I do, and a lot better than I do in Ireland. You're going through uh, massive shifts in culture where people were going to church, and now hardly anyone's going to church. All right. I think the most important thing is for you to be a loving, gracious, just person with those people themselves. That's by far the most important thing you can do is to be a witness in how you live. And then to surround yourself with other people who can similarly be good witnesses to Jesus and to the gospel. And it's not probably going to be an argument that wins people to the gospel and wins people back to the church, but living witnesses of the gospel that make Christianity credible in our day by the way they live. Uh, and I often summarize this with the word goodness, is that when 
when you encounter goodness in a person, you believe that person as authentic to whatever they teach and preach and believe. And Christians need to be marked more by goodness. And when they are, more people will listen to them. But we're starting all over again at the ground level, one person at a time. We're not, uh, we're not gonna be, this is not the black and white days of Billy Graham in LA where everybody pretty much had a Christian ethic. And when he told them to repent, they, they knew what it meant. Today, people not only don't know what it means, but they don't believe it. So we have to start over.